Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Let's begin our study of 2 Thessalonians today, uh, the second half of this study, if you will. We did 1 Thessalonians, now we'll jump into 2 Thessalonians. And uh, let's begin with prayer. If you have your prayer before the study of Scripture, let's, let's open our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. As you open to the book of 2 Thessalonians, you will see that it's a shorter book than 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians had five chapters. This one has three chapters. But just because it's shorter does not mean that it's any less uh, important these two letters really uh, have so much to say. We have seen between the two letters, or we will see as we've studied it all, we will see that Paul is really, the Apostle Paul is really identifying three different groups of problem people in the lives of the Thessalonians. He identified for us in the first book the, the idea that there are persecutors. There are people persecuting the Thessalonian Christians. And we remember they're, they're new Christians. They're pagan converts with probably a few Jewish converts mixed in in this very important pagan Greek city of Thessaloniki. Now, persecutors we've heard about. Now we're going to hear about false teachers. There are also false teachers. We're going to hear that come out pretty strongly in this second uh, second book. And then there are also the, the idlers. We talked about that last week. The idlers, the ones who are really disruptors. They're the troublemakers. Okay, so we have persecutors, which are persecutors are probably not Christians. Those are the those are the pagan, maybe they're family members, maybe they're city officials, maybe they're just people in the community that do not like this Christian church plant, if you will. And so they're persecuting them for their faith. 
false teachers, it appears, as we're going to learn in this second book, are, are uh, coming from within. They are teaching a false gospel. They're teaching false doctrine. And so Paul is writing, and then we have just troublemakers within the church, you know, within the group and the community. He's writing to refute against these deceivers. There, there are people that have been deceiving them. These false teachers are deceivers. He's trying to refute them. He, one of the themes that he comes up with in this refutation against the deceivers is the idea that there is yet to come a retribution on those who are unrighteous, and there is a vindication for those who are righteous. We're going to hear that theme kind of come up in this book as well. We're going to see him, as he always does, encouraging their faith. The great apostle is always an encourager, encouraging their new, their new faith. We'll hear him warning. The apostle Paul, you're going to hear words of warning. He's warning them against some of this false doctrine and thinking wrongly uh, that they, they need to be aware of. Uh, and particularly in this book, 2 Thessalonians, he's going to warn them against thinking that Jesus Christ has A, already come, or B, is coming really soon. Okay? Because he's going to warn them about that thought. Don't take for granted. You know, let's think about that in the big picture, you know. It, we're 2,000 years after this letter. Roughly 2,000, in that neighborhood, right? We'll give or take 100 years. We're 2,000 years later, two millennia. And their writing, Paul, the Christian experience of the first century, is some 2,000 years approximately, since God began his whole story of revelation with humanity and the coming of Abraham and the covenant with Abraham. So, so you know, we see God slowly revealing himself over time through his word, through history, building relationship with his covenant people and teaching them, getting them ready for Messiah. That took 2,000 years. From the time God revealed himself to Abraham to the time Messiah came, eh, roughly 2,000 years. And now, the church. From the coming of Jesus Christ, we see the church on earth, his body, pushing out this mission to the ends of the earth, the Great Commission, to, to share the message of the gospel and salvation with, with the ends of the earth. And that's been another 2,000 years. But we should always keep in mind that while we think linear, because we're, that's what we do as people. We are people trapped in a timeline. The church, history to God, is not linear. He sees it all at once. He saw it all at once before time ever began, before creation. And in and, and, and scripture, that's why scripture teaches us that, you know, a day in the life of God would be like a thousand years in the life of man. Now that's not meant to give us a legitimate ruler. Okay, so we can start planning everything that happens in one day. Whenever it talks about a day in Scripture, it really means a thousand years, and blah, 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 blah. So therefore, a day in creation was actually 6,000 years, and then the seventy. That's not what that Scripture is trying to... In that Scripture, that thought is repeated in Old Testament and New Testament. The idea of a thousand years like a day in the life of God. Don't get into numerology. Don't get trapped into trying to figure out things by numbers, Okay. This is a story. We're entering into the story of God 
And we're listening in to how he wanted to encourage them about the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ and what it means and what has to happen before that comes, before he comes, and and what life is like and how we're going to have to persevere. So we today, 2,000 years later, we can read this letter and we can enter into that story because we know Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet. Will he come soon? How do you measure soon? Yeah. I mean, I've, I will honestly pray. I've, I've prayed so. You know, there's been many times I've prayed, Lord, you know, wouldn't it be really nice if, you know, my mother's 91. 90. Okay. Rhonda's mother's 80-ish. We have two grown kids, you know, and while they're, you know, I want to see life lived out. I want to see my, someday have grandkids and all that. On the other hand, the world just keeps getting to be worse and worse and worse, which seems prophetic too, okay? And it it would be almost like, okay, Lord, just come. Just come and we'll just get on with eternity. You know, we'll just all go. Won't have to face the death of my mother. Won't have already faced the death of my father. Won't have to face the death of, my children won't have to face my death or vice versa. You know, wouldn't that be nice? So we just pray, Lord Jesus, come. The very last line of scripture the very last line, if you turn to the book of Revelation, you don't have to do it right now, mm-hmm. but if you turn to the very last book, line of the book of Revelation, it is what? Even so, come, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Which you could say basically in one word in, in Greek, Maranatha. That's what Maranatha means. Come, come Lord Jesus, you know. So after all is said and done, that should be our prayer. Come Lord Jesus. But he hadn't come yet. So the Apostle Paul is going to, Teach us through this book of Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. That's a tongue twister. We try and say it real fast. <laughs> He's going to teach us how we should be patient and what we should be doing. So let's begin the book. I'll just we'll just look at the first chapter today. I don't know if we'll get to talk all the way through it. If we do, then we did chapter one in one setting, uh, which is unusual for me. But let's give it a try, okay? Let's look at Second Thessalonians, beginning with. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions which you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God deems it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God, and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints 
and to be marveled at in all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his call and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let that end our reading. Now, I wrote an outline for you on the board that's just a very simple overview of this little three-chapter book. In this chapter, first, the first chapter, we're going to look basically at the concept of Christ being revealed. Okay, the revelation of Christ at, at the end of time. In the second chapter, Paul's going to lead us through this thought of the rebellion of the Antichrist. And in the third chapter, he's going to speak to us specifically, as he did to them, of what is our responsibility as Christians. Considering the revelation of Christ that is to come, considering the rebellion of the Antichrist that is to come, but yet is already in work through, as he'll say, the work of lawlessness, which we know, of course, is sin and evil in this world. What is our responsibility as Christians in response to all of these teachings of the good apostle? Well, let's begin at the beginning. When you look at this, first thing we notice is that this is the same group that's writing the letter, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So recall the first letter, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy founded this church in Thessalonica, had to leave because there was such rebellion in the city and such disruption that they had to, they were forced out of the city uh, under cover of darkness, practically. And they hear, it's been a few months, they hear that things are being persecuted, but they're, they just, they want to know that they're still holding on. So I think he sends, uh, it was Timothy or Sylvanus, one of them, I can't remember now, and to go find out. And he goes and finds out and writes back to Paul, who was in Corinth, writes back to him, hey, and that's the cause of the letter, 1 Thessalonians. He writes back to him and says, they're, they're standing strong. And so Paul writes his first letter, the five-chapter letter we just finished. You're standing strong. I'm so proud of you. I want to encourage you about this, this, and this. And that's 1 Thessalonians. And then a few more months go by. So from the time they founded the church to the time of the first letter, probably six months. We don't know exactly, but it's definitely within the short time frame of a year. And then a few more months go by. (coughs) Excuse me. A few more months go by, and we have a second letter from Paul. Why does he have to write this second letter so quickly, especially? Because he's hearing about these false teachers that are going to tear these people apart. This is a danger. Okay, it's one thing to have persecution from outside of the church. We can expect that. I mean, we're just expected to have persecution as Christians. Jesus, all through the gospel, it, it, it talks about the suffering that we that we are called to endure. Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. Paul teaches us in the Roman letter that we are only heirs with him if we suffer with him. The way of Christ is the way of suffering. The way of the Christian is the way of suffering. But it's also the way of joy because we know the end of the story. We know that our God wins. We know that Christ is victorious. 
But in that process, he writes to them because false teaching, that's a whole other story. Somebody within the church starts teaching wrong doctrine. Wow. Now we are in danger of losing the whole church, being led astray by false teaching. This is a real problem. And this false teaching seems to be centered around the idea of the second coming of Christ. And when it happens, if it's already happened, and in some of these type of confusions, we'll see them unravel as we study this. Um, so why is this so important? It's very important. It's one of the most important letters that Paul wrote. It's one of the earliest letters. We know that these, these two letters are some of the, their, most scholars would say First and Second Thessalonians are the earliest written letters that we have of all the New Testament. Written somewhere maybe around the year 50. 51, 52 A.D., so less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we have these letters being written. And uh, so you can see how important they are. Now, he says to them, he begins by wishing them uh, grace and peace. That's very common for the Apostle Paul. In all of his letters, he wishes grace and peace uh, those are two things we could spend hours and hours talking about the grace of God and the peace of God. Uh, two things that should be the hallmark of our lives as Christians. We should be living in the grace of God because he is a good God and he's a giving God and he's a faithful God. And that grace should bring us his peace. So if you're living in turmoil, okay, inner turmoil, then something's wrong because Christians should be people of peace. Now, outer turmoil, we can't control. Like that's, They couldn't control the fact that they're being persecuted from outsiders, but they can control what they do with inner turmoil. You know, that's, that, now, that gets down to inner peace. The shalom of God, the Hebrew word shalom, I love that word. It just speaks to the pervasiveness of God's peace. It just fills the world. It fills, it fills his kingdom. There is no place where the peace of God cannot inhabit. Think about that with me for a minute. There's no place the peace of God cannot inhabit. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but so when, when I start getting my eyes on the problems I have in this life, and believe me, I've got problems just like you do. Everyone does. When I start getting my eyes on those and I start feeling nervous or anxious or worried, what does that mean? I'm, I'm forfeiting the peace of God in my life because I've taken my eyes off of him and put them on the problem. That's what the apostle's trying to get them. He's trying to draw their eyes back onto Christ. They've been getting them on the Antichrist and all the predictions about the Antichrist and all the problems that they're suffering you know, in this life, but he's get your eyes back on Christ. That's that's what he's so he's wishing them grace and peace from always the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is Trinitarian theology, even though he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here. We know that Jesus taught, I and the Father are one. And we know that the 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 overall view of Scripture, you see the Holy Spirit is must be God. Eventually, early Christian teachers will just plain out say it. The Holy Spirit is God, too. It's God also. So uh, this is very much uh, not a dualistic thing. It's the Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says uh, we're bound to give thanks in verse 3. 
there's a strong language there. He says, we're, we're, uh, we must give thanks. Okay. So a little mini outline just for this chapter I'll give you. Okay. In verses 3 and 4, 1 and 2 are his greeting to them. But in verses 3 and 4, what is Paul doing? He's giving thanks. The word here in the Greek is the word I've taught you, Eucharistia. Eucharistia. We hear that word when we think of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, often called the Eucharist. The Lord's Supper is the thanksgiving meal of Christians. And that's that word that means thanksgiving here, okay? He's giving them thanks. He says, we're bound. We have to give thanks for you. Why? Because of your faith and how it is growing abundantly. So whatever the... The letter that came back to Paul was said, it said, hey, their faith is growing. Yeah, there's problems. Yeah, they're in concerns, but their faith is growing. And he even says it's growing abundantly, which is pretty exciting. And he also hears a report back in that letter of the love of everyone, that every one of you seems to have a love for one another, and it's increasing. That should be the hallmark of the Christian church. Every bishop or superintendent or or leader over the churches, when he gets a letter from a church pastor or the people, it it should say these things. It should say that our faith is growing abundantly, and it should say that our love for everyone is growing abundantly. That's the hallmark of the Christian church. That's what we should be about. And so he sees those things in this church, and he says, therefore, in verse 4, therefore we boast about you guys. So Paul is out there telling the other churches, this tells us that there are other churches around, you know, he's telling them everywhere, you guys ought to hear about the Thessalonians. These guys are amazing. He's saying, you wouldn't believe what they're suffering. You wouldn't believe how the Greeks in that community are just tearing them down and persecuting them. And, but you know, their faith is strong. The church is growing. That's the, that's the kind of report. Paul's hearing, and and he's so thankful for it, and he's offering that thanksgiving to God, and he's bragging about them in all the churches of God, because their faith, he uses the word steadfast here. Uh, You're steadfast in the face of all your persecutions and afflictions, and he uses that word, that final word in verse 4, you're enduring. We've talked about that word before, the idea of bearing up under something long term. There isn't any, here's the bad news in this situation. Paul's not writing that there's an end in sight anytime soon for their persecution. But as, as humans, that, that's what we want to hear, isn't it? We want to hear, okay, well, I'll bear up, but when is it going to end? And it still hasn't ended. That's right. See, it, 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 in, in some sense, there is always persecution of the people of God in this present kingdom of this world. That's something. Report today on so many many countries um, in Asia and Africa uh-huh. are s- persecuting Christians by the millions. Mm. And North Korea is the worst, and they fight at how many millions, and they kill not only the Christian, but they kill their all their family mm. so that they won't. So they'll just eradicate. They won't spread. They're trying to eradicate the movement of Christ. That's right. Isn't that horrible? And that's still happening, ladies and gentlemen. It's happening all over the world. But when you think about it, 
you know, those people aren't going to suffer anymore. I mean, that's right. They, they're the martyrs. They've received the crown of righteousness. Okay. Um, it should give us pause to be thankful. Uh, thankful for. I'm just going to say it. We should be thankful for the United States of America. I know there's just an awful lot of critics today. I mean, I'm just going to say something here that might be controversial, might not be in this group. I'm tired of Christians who put down the United States of America. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of it. You know, the United States of America is not perfect. No nation is perfect. We have elements within our society and our structure that, that are not Christian, that are definitely not good. But but you know what? We were a great experiment founded on the concept of freedom given by God. You know, when you read the Declaration of Independence and, and, and you start learning about inalienable rights given by God, we believe that God willed men to be free, the people to be free. You know, that that's where his best expression of his love and mercy and grace is. So we set up a government to do that, and that's not all bad. Yeah. Do you know that George Washington prayed for three hours before he crossed the river into battle? I did not know that. If you go back and Makes sense, read though. on that, he was very religious. And yeah, he was. In his own way, he was very, I mean, he's the one that said it's impossible. He's quoted as having said it's impossible to govern a people rightly without the Bible. Well, he had like so many men, and the <coughs> British had so many, and they were outnumbered. Outnumbered, that's right. So by the grace of God, he won the war. So we have had a, a blessed history in our nation, okay? Uh, you know, everywhere today people are down. I mean, there are so many in America and even Christians who are politically just putting our nation down, putting down our, our capitalist uh, economy and everything. And, and I just want to say to them, you know, what's the alternative? Would you rather just be communist? No. Now, what's the alternative? You know, why? No. Capitalism is not blessed of God, uh, but but communism isn't either. You know, uh, there there is no, uh, they're they're just they're economic systems, okay. And if the ruling majority of people want to choose communism, well, more power to them. They're free to do that. But what has been historic is that it's not been the majority of people. It's been the leader. It's been the rule of tyrants that have forced it upon people. We have tried to establish the rule of free people and free elections. Yes. We have lived in the best years. This generation has. This generation, you are so right. You're so right about that. We are. We are the. We have. We have lived in the best, freest, most peaceful, most technologically advanced, most easy time in the history of this nation. And boy, I wonder if we're really thankful for it. I hope we are. But yes, Kent. I was going to say, if you listen to that Democratic uh, debate, the other, debate night. Yeah. the other night, you see right away their thinking is far, far left and doing away with all the freedom. Well, it's a scary thought to see a major political party moving that far outside the mainstream. It does bother me a lot. Um, I don't believe God has blessed the Democratic or the Republican Party. They both have their issues and their problems. Right. But we live in a two-party system, so figure out how you're going to work within it. I think um, they think that that 
their party is making everybody equal. There's not the upper and lower. And the, right, so, right. So there's just going to be upper and and, and, and it's not. Yeah, there's always, in every society on earth, go, go try to find the one that's, uh, that's supposedly the most equal. There's always a ruling class. Always. Uh, there's always a have and have nots. Why? Because this world is not our home. There's no gospel song that says this world is not our home. No government that ever is established, not even American government, is our home. No, no, nothing in this world is our home. Our home is heaven. As the writer of Hebrews says, I'm looking for a city whose builder is God. Okay? Now, I, I promise I won't get too political with you. I didn't mean to get political. I'm just saying, can you imagine, I mean, the thanksgiving that, that, that is being get lifted up by Paul here in the, to a people in the midst of a great persecution. Sometimes I, I fear persecution is coming greater and greater to our shores that we know nothing about yet. And I fear for that day. And we better get our heads on straight and get our faith strong and start teaching the gospel um, because the only sanctuary is the gospel of God. The only sanctuary is the gospel of God. Yes? Well, I was going to say, you know, there was a, a story this morning on, on uh, Bad Roberts about a young girl that was in a Muslim uh, family uh-huh. and the persecution she went through. Mm. And even up to her adult life, the persecution felt like she was felt like made to feel like she was nothing. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, she ultimately turned to Christ and accepted the Christian life and has done well now. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, we know that Christianity is the answer uh, to all the world's problems. You know, Christianity is the answer to all the world's problems. Christ is the Creator of the world, how could his how could his faith not be the answer to all the world's problems? But uh, sometimes we are very poor ambassadors of those answers. So the Apostle Paul is encouraging these dear people to bear up and keep enduring, because then in verse five, this is the second portion of this chapter. In five through ten, he's got Paul is kind of giving a defense, if you will of what God is going to do about God's divine judgment. He's introducing this thought. There is a divine judgment. Part of the gospel message is, yes, the gospel message is God is love. Amen. Hallelujah. But it's also that that there is divine justice. It will come one day. And so let's look back at that section. He says in the beginning of that, he says this is evidence of this righteous judgment of God. What is the this is evidence? Well, he answers it by saying that you be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. You, you know, the evidence that God is righteous and his judgment is righteous is that you are made worthy. And how are they made worthy? Only by persevering. Okay, only by persevering. There's no get out of suffering free card as long as we live on this earth. Only by persevering. And so that word in the Greek there, it's... Uh, it's it's a it's I didn't write it on the board. It's it's endigma endigma uh, in verse five, and that word literally means proof. So it's not just evidence. You know, in a trial, in a course of a trial, they present evidence. Okay. Well, this word literally means evidence. Might prove something. It might not. It's just evidence being introduced. But what I want you to hear is the way this Greek word is used. It's proof. 
their lives of endurance are proof that they're being made worthy of the calling of God, of his kingdom. You know, that, that's a powerful thought. You know, that, that, that I mean, when, when people look at, when you look at these people that are being martyred and always have been martyred, and some outsiders look at that and say, why would they suffer that? Just, you know, like, like, the, like the people, Job's friends told him, curse God and die. I mean, just curse God and die. No, he said, I never will. And they say, no, you can take my life, but you can't take my faith. You can't take my God. And so they willingly give up their lives. They're martyred. And that's been happening throughout the ages. And it's, the, it's like the proof. Who would do that? You know, when people offer this argument against Christianity that it's, that it's just a fable, that it's a myth, he didn't really rise from the dead, and people are just, you know, following this myth, who would give their life for a myth? Paul... I mean, Peter, who would do that? They all, except for John, martyrs. Who would do that for a myth? No, they knew the risen Christ. They met the risen Christ. They, they were touched by the risen Christ. And, and that story, that's still powerful. That's still alive 2,000 years later. And you and I, through the gift and power of the Holy Spirit, we can meet the risen Christ too. Because he is... I, it's, I've gone through half of our time already today, and we're only in verse five. <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm just, I'm so excited to talk to you about. In some of my workshops that I've been doing in my ministry, uh, the workshop on worship. I do a workshop on worship. Christ, the risen Christ, is present when you walk into church. You're walking into His holy house, and He is present through the power of His Spirit. And that happens in, that can happen in any style of church. It has nothing to do with style. Jesus says, my father is looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And when we come with our minds set right, we are coming not to listen to us. We're not coming to listen to a sermon that's going to tickle our ears. We shouldn't be. We're not coming to just sing our favorite songs. We shouldn't be. We're not coming, you know, if we get a sermon that's good, Praise the Lord, hallelujah, we need those. If we happen to be singing songs that you like, praise the Lord, that's good too, but not everybody likes the same kind of music and never will. And just like nobody likes the same kind of food, nobody likes the same kind of cars, nobody likes the same kind of anything. We're all uniquely individual, and that's okay. God made us that way. But the object of our worship isn't the music, isn't the word of the sermon, it's God. It's, It's the risen Lord Jesus Christ present among us. He is our great high priest. Um, you ever wonder, I, I, I just kind of throw this kind of stuff in, you know, these are bonuses. Okay. I'm just giving you bonuses and you're probably saying, get on with the book, Brad. Okay. You know, when, when, when you, in the old days, cause y'all knew I had a Catholic background in the old days of the Catholic church, the minister of the church, the priest, okay. Always stood at the altar with his back to the people. The altar was against the back wall. Okay. And through most of the services, his back was against the, was to the people. Do you know why? Anybody know why? Now, they changed that in the 60s through Vatican II, and they brought the altar out, and they turned it around, and he starts, you know, some people say they Protestantized it. You know, that's, you know the, every Methodist church has an altar table right out in the middle, and the pastor spends some time in the pulpit, sometimes at the table, always looking at people, you know. So 
Protestants said, hey, you're looking a little more like us. And, you know, why did they do that? Because he was worshiping God at the altar. By, he was facing. Absolutely. You're right, Carol. He was, they, they were all, it wasn't just that he had his back to the people. They all yeah. had their backs to the world. And they were facing Almighty God, and he was the leader lifting up their prayers and leading them in prayer and worship of Almighty God. That's the thought. Nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful thought. Beautiful thought. I listened to, I think his name was Juan Carlos Ortiz. Juan Carlos Ortiz speaking in, in the chapel of this church. This has probably been 20 years ago. I don't know. Do you, anybody remember that? Juan Carlos, he was an Argentinian. He was from Argentina, and he was a Pentecostal, charismatic evangelist, worldwide evangelist, Juan Carlos Ortiz. I'm pretty sure that was I know the Juan Carlos part. I think it's Ortiz. And I remember him teaching us one day. He was in town. Pastor Williams was the pastor in those days. And he was teaching us about worship. And, and he was just, he, he was talking about this Pentecostal assembly he was in in Argentina in Buenos Aires and one day he was just they were so moved by the power of God as they were praying he did that he just he didn't grow up Catholic either he was born and raised at Pentecostal in Argentina you know and he just turned around and just did that he felt moved to just do that and he did that in here and it was like we just all felt like wow somebody's you know so never criticize other forms is the moral of the story because the truth is Whatever our form is, we don't worship the form, we worship God. And he's in our midst, okay? And, and so, enough, I digress. We'll, we'll jump back out of that rabbit hole. He says this is evidence. Their, their suffering, their persevering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I think the first thing we need to note is that God's judgment is, God's judgment is righteous. Okay, his judgment is righteous. His judgment is not uh, meanness. It's not unfounded, ultimately, it's always righteous. Okay, I think that's very important for us to understand. God is not, God is not in his nature mean and wrathful. Okay, he has a wrath, but we have to understand that that wrath is actually the working out of his love. Because God is love. This is the fullness of the revelation that we get in the New Testament that we didn't get in the Old Testament. The fullness of the revelation, the end of the story is God is love. You know, this God that you've been following all these years, the, the New Testament is saying he's love. John says he's love. He's light and he's love. So what, what does it mean that his wrath is the working out of his love? What does it mean, as we're going to hear these next few verses, listen to some of this. It says, uh, verse 6, since indeed, in other words, he's saying this is a fact, this is truth. God deems it just or right, in other words, to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. Well, you know, there's a verse in the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? Okay? So that means we're supposed to think of God as a vengeful God? No, 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 no. That's, let's be careful there. God is love. But in our humanity, the scripture is given for us humans to be able to somehow enter into an understanding of God. Somehow, in some small microscopic way, God has invited us to try and understand him. He's the creator. We're the pot. We're the kettle. You know, we're the creator. We cannot understand the creator. But he's given us windows to look into his, his amazing being. Okay? And, and, and what he's saying, the one way we can, re- we can relate to that, okay, vengeance and wrath, it's right. He's gonna, what he's saying is God's going to make it right. 
They're not going to get away with this affliction of you forever. They've got affliction coming. You're going to get what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow in this. If you don't get it in this world, they're going to get it in the next. And he talks about that. He goes on to say, when the Lord Jesus is, he said, for those who afflict you and to grant rest with us, meaning us apostles, us Christians, you will get to rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What What is that? He's pointing to the second coming of Christ is what he's pointing to. The, the Greek word, the parousia, we've learned about that, parousia, the second coming of Jesus. When he comes again, when he steps out into history, puts an end to history, and comes, Paul is saying he's going to come with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Mm-hmm. Again, these are images of wrath and retribution. Okay, He says, he goes on and says, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is afflicting vengeance. We hear a side of God here that makes us uncomfortable when we think about God as love. But I want to repeat to you, his vengeance, his wrath, is nothing more than the pureness of his love. If he failed to bring what the scripture here is calling vengeance or wrath, okay, or retribution, if he failed to bring that upon those who have freely chosen to be evil and to reject him, how is that love? That's called being an enabler. (laughs) God is not an enabler. God is just. His his justice is, is pure. So his holiness, his holiness, I love the word holiness. He is holy. When you think about, because holiness means pure. Okay, so when we think about, you know, other ways scripture tries to talk about this is if you being fathers want to give good gifts to your children, how would Jesus said, wouldn't your heavenly father be even more so? Or, you know, when scripture says, you know, we discipline our children because we love them. Same way with God. He he allows discipline in our lives because he loves us. And ultimately, so here's the way I like to think of God's wrath and his vengeance and retribution. Here's, here's what's helped me tremendously. Because I, there's not a dualistic God. There's not a God who's mean and a God who's good. There's not two sides to God. He's not schizophrenic. He doesn't have a mean side and a good side. It's just all purity, all love, all holy. And here's what helps me see that. Is that he loves us, everyone, not just those who believe. He loves everyone, even the vilest offenders and evil. He loves everyone so much that he would not dare force you to be with him forever. If you don't want it, he's going to let you have your way. That's why, I always, that's why I always say, it's your choice. That's why I always say, no one goes to hell by accident. And he loves us unconditionally. His love is unconditional. Absolutely. Think about my dad, yeah. and I've shared this before. Yeah. Sure. He doesn't love me unconditionally. Sure. He always puts, you know, limits on it or whatever. Right. And, and, but I know I have a heavenly father that loves me unconditionally. His love is perfect, unconditionally perfect like that. So no matter who in your life is not unconditional and not pure loving, um, just know you have a heavenly father. And he will make all things right. And his way will be holy and just. Yes. He has, God has shown me this to the ones that afflict us 
are afflicted too. And if they can, and if I react as Jesus would towards them in love, then they'll see the love of Jesus in me, and yeah, hopefully choose Him. Let them see in us the glory of Jesus. So He goes on to say in verse nine, they—that means those who reject God, okay, the evildoers, the pers- these these false teachers, and these ones that he's talking about here, uh, these deceivers, they shall also suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's not an accident. We're supposed to take, Paul meant eternal. God had taught him through Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is writing truth, and he's saying there is an eternal destruction. Think about those words. Destruction sounds final. And eternal is anything but final. I mean, it just lasts forever. It's eternal. But there is an eternal separation, in other words, in which we are... Those who ultimately reject God will be in a, in a place, not even a place, I shouldn't use that word, but in, a, in an experience of eternal separation from God, and that will feel destructive. Okay? He says it. He says, exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the separation part. Okay, so what is... He's describing hell. That's what he's doing. He doesn't use the word hell here, but he's what he's describing. Hell will be a place that is excluded from the love and presence of God and will feel like destruction, okay? Now, there are some, some theologians, and the more, the longer I live, the more I study, the more I start to understand this thought, is that hell is not excluded from the very presence of Almighty God, because where could, the psalmist teaches us, where can I go from your presence? If I go up in the mountains, I go in the desert, I go anywhere. I'm, God is present everywhere. It's his creation. Okay? So wherever hell is, and that's why we shouldn't think of it as a place, whatever hell is, it, it, it is still there's a consciousness that God is good and pure and holy, and those in hell are going to be conscious they missed it. They'll, they they'll know what they rejected. They will be able to see. Because there's somehow, somehow, in our humanity it's hard for us to understand, but somehow they will still know and see. And I think Jesus is, I think Jesus is showing us this in his story in Luke chapter 16 of that, the idea of the beggar that goes to Abraham's bosom in paradise and the rich man that mistreated him in this world goes to Hades and is in a place of torment. And they, they can see the experience. And the, 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 beggar, the guy in torment wishes he could cross, but he can't. So some of that's there. I think we can even look at the story of the prodigal son. And that when we look at that whole story and when we see that the, the other brother stands outside the door after the other, after the son comes home and he's loved and he's gathered in, the other brother just stands outside and, and pouts. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's not part of the party, if you will, but he can see what's going on. I'm not saying that theologically the other brother's in hell. I'm just trying to give you an image of this idea of being close to the, close enough to know, but far enough to not experience, okay, the, the, the joy and the love and the beauty that will be the glory of, of, of heaven. And he says that that is going to happen on that day. He uses that phrase when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. In other words, to be, uh, when Jesus does come on the day of his second coming, there will be a day 
in history when Jesus returns into this world physically. And on that day, all of his saints, that means all of us who have believed, the saints that are come with him, other scriptures teach about this, him riding on a white horse and all those coming with him and, and, and the holy angels with him and those who are here on earth still, we're going to be glorified, which means we're going to be proved right. We're going to experience his glory if you're found as one who is in faith and believing. Okay? It's going to be a glorious thing. It's going to be an incredible thing. And it says, glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul's testimony to them was believed. Ultimately, how do we get there? We've got to believe somebody's testimony. The Bible is a testimony. It's a recorded witness of God revealing the testimony of his apostles, of his prophets, of his holy men and women, and it's for us to be believed. And it's been passed down, and that testimony keeps being passed down. And it's for, Ultimately, we, we don't get there without belief. So he says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his call. Okay, so now I've, I've passed into the third part of this chapter. Okay, 5 through 10, what was he doing? He was defending and defining and explaining the second coming of Jesus and why he's going to make it right. But now in verse 11 and verse 12, the last two verses, he crosses over and he starts to talk like a prayer. He says, to that end, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his call. So what's his prayer for them? His prayer for them is that God will make them worthy. Now, there's a difference between that prayer and a prayer that says, thank you, God, for having made them worthy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't talk in a past tense. He talks about a future tense. In other words, and I've told you this in this Bible study before, their salvation is, yes, it is secure, but it's also proceeding. The word salvation in the Greek, which is the Greek word soter, S-O-T-E-R, soter, means to be saved, okay? That word is used three different ways in Scripture. Was saved, past tense. Am saved, present tense. Will be saved, future tense. Paul is using the future tense here. He's talking about, he, he doesn't even actually use the word soter in the scriptures, so I don't want to mislead you there, but these, meaning the experience of when, when he does come again, he makes you, he's talking about that God will make you worthy of his call and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power. You hear the working out of our salvation. Paul says in another place in scripture, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The overwhelming way in which the Greek word Soter is used in scripture in the New Testament is will be. Will be. Not have been. You know, I hope everybody in here can say I've been saved. I hope everyone in here would say I feel I am saved. But more than any of those two, I hope you say I, I'm going to keep persevering and I will be saved. That's our prayer. That's our theology. We want to be on the last day. When he comes, will we be found faithful? One of the most dangerous things in the world is to take the grace of God for granted. Don't take the grace of God for granted. 
He closes so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying it is only by God's power, okay, that he ended verse 11 by saying, by his power, it's only by his power that we can and will be made worthy. Okay? It's all salvation. At the end of the day, salvation is God's gift. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to cooperate with that gift. Doesn't mean that we don't need to synergistically step into his grace. That he's the he's the prime mover. God calls first. God has initiated the call of salvation before time began. God, scripture, Peter says in his epistle, God is not willing that any should be lost, but that all should come to salvation. That's his will. That's his perfect will. But you see, there is this human freedom that keeps some people from finding it. And boy, sometimes when we think about this, when we think about this, we go, why wouldn't somebody want this? Why wouldn't somebody want to be to be saved? Why wouldn't somebody want to live life in Christ? Why don't they? Why don't they? Well, the only answer I have, a thought about that, and the only answer I have to that is that they just haven't seen it lived out in a way that they can believe. And that's an indictment on me and my failures. That's an indictment on the church of humanity in our world today on its failures. Uh, there, we, we need to hear that. Sometimes I think, too, that it's, they've had so much tragedy in their lives that they lose faith, and that's the key thing. You have to keep your faith. Yeah. And to keep it, we need to be encouraged. We need people like Paul in our life to encourage us. You know, These people were in danger of losing theirs. That's why he wrote the letter. I mean, if Paul had never written these two letters, would the Thessalonian church have made it? Well, I guess we'll never know, but there's a strong case that said they wouldn't because who of us would be? Would we have made it without these letters? That's what we have scripture for. God gave us these scriptures so that we could read them and be encouraged. And, um, but but when, when we think about this, I, I guess I feel, I feel strongly, just my closing words here. So we've been talking about the revelation of Christ today. Paul in chapter 1, he's talking about this beautiful Lord Jesus Christ, all-powerful, almighty, who will bring his vindication and his retribution to those who reject him. But he will vindicate those who have suffered, those who have believed. We've been talking about that, and I guess I I just want to, I want to say in closing that I feel convicted. More and more, I mean, last night, I just sat through the most beautiful, I sat through the most beautiful experience and didn't sit through it. I experienced the most beautiful Ash Wednesday service I've ever personally been in. And I, Ash Wednesdays were always one of my favorite services to plan, okay? But now that I'm not in full-time pastoring anymore, I I don't do that. And I'm like, it was, I, I mean, I started out this service sitting there going, this doesn't feel right. I need to be tar- participating. I need to be, I need to be doing. I need to be up there, you know. Uh, but that's not my place right now. And and but but I, I got to tell you, I just sat on the other side of it and just 
received and saw such beauty. And what was the purpose? And it reminded me the purpose of Lent. The purpose of Lent. And I've started writing a daily devotional for Lent. If you want, if it's, it's email, you can join the email and get it. Um, make sure you're on my email mailing list. Um, but I call it the latter rain. The latter rain. This year, this year I'm con- and I'm concentrating on the celebration of Lent. When I was young, I always thought Lent was something we had to observe. It just observe the where we're going to observe a holy Lent. We're just going to do. We're going to make sure I fast. We're going to make sure I pray more. We're going to make sure I give more. I'm going to make sure I observing all these rules, if you will. But I was missing the celebration. And, and I'm trying to bring out through certain scriptural references as we study this daily devotional, the idea of the latter rain. I, I, I began with the book of Joel. There's a passage in the book of Joel that is always read on Ash Wednesday. And in that, he talks about in chapter 2, verse 23, he talks about, go read, that was what I wrote on yesterday. If you find yesterday's, it's out there on Facebook and, and, and places like that. But um, he, he writes in that verse that God has brought the former rain, the early rain, and the latter rain. The early rain are the blessings of God that have got us to where we are. But God will bring the latter rain. The latter rain is, is, is what he's promising to fall on us to get us where we're going. Okay. I, I wish I would have thought of those words in yesterday's devotion. I didn't even phrase it that way. <laughs> Can't go back and rewrite it. Um, to get us where we're going. You know, there was an, and, and, you know, instinctively a song came to my mind. Instinctively, a song came to my mind yesterday. I didn't put it in the devotional. I'll bring it out somewhere along the way in this in this 40-day uh, journey. But there was a song that we used to sing in the choir when I first came to this church years ago when I was in the choir. Uh, I, we sang a song, a big anthem. I think that's what you call it. The Latter Rain. Anybody here remember it? <clears throat> Rondi, do you remember it? We sang it? Nobody, nobody but me remembers it. The Latter Rain. We sang it several times back in the days of the big choir. The latter rain is falling. You remember it a little bit? The latter rain is falling. The latter rain is falling. Mighty showers of blessing are being outpoured. They are falling on believers. Falling on believers who have a thirst and hunger for the Lord. And then it just builds. You know, then the orchestra comes in. In many lands and places, in near and faraway places, refreshing showers of blessing are being outpoured. You know, and I can't sing it all because I've forgotten most of it. But, but, but it, it, it. I, there was something about that song just always made me feel like, you know, I would get goosebumps every time I sang it. I just kind of expected the skies to open up and Jesus to come down, you know, and and it just, you got to listen to the whole song. I'll find it on YouTube somewhere and I'll post it in one of my devotions. Maybe tomorrow I'll do that tomorrow because I already wrote today's. But 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 I guess what I want you to hear is is we're beginning a journey of Lent. Today's day two, okay. Um, if you've never observed Lent. Don't celebrate it. Don't just observe it. Celebrate it. Celebrate the latter rain. Celebrate the blessing. To fast is to wash your face and put on a glow. And to, you know what I mean? It is to, 
get in there. To suffer is to suffer with Christ. So, you know, somehow I, I want to find the celebration of Lent this year. Uh, that's, so that's just what God's teaching me. And, and I want to find that in this message of 2 Thessalonians. When we think about the end of the world, when we think about the persecution and the trials and the tribulations and all that's happening across our world, let's think about the celebration of the day Jesus is coming again. Amen. He is coming again. Hallelujah. Amen, right? Okay. Well, we should stop there. We'll go on to chapter 2 next week. And uh, thank you for being here. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, how can we thank you for a love that just is so pure, so holy, that you would never force us to do anything against our will? So, Father, teach us to bring our will in surrender to your perfect will and to live in the showers of this latter rain, the blessings that are all around us if we just open our eyes and see them. So thank you, Father, for this group and this time. And for all those who cannot be here, we pray our prayers are with them and for them. So bless them now and bless us in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today, and may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you.